the Renegade Economist, where we're talking about tax avoidance. It's in the press daily, with uh, companies like Chevron paying hundreds of dollars on profits of in the billions, hundreds of billions of dollars. So uh, the government tells us there's no other option but to increase the GST on our food. Meanwhile, uh, these big companies like Chevron set up loans between different company branches uh, at exorbitant interest rates to wind down their profits. Now, today's guest, Roman Lannis, has uh, written plenty of amazing articles on The Conversation. And uh, one of the ones we're featuring today is called The Accounting Trick That Helps Multinational Companies Avoid Paying Tax. So yes, someone has to do it. Someone has to dig into uh, these tax tricks. And that's what we're up to today with Roman Lannis. So uh, sit back and enjoy another in-depth analysis here on 3CR's Renegade Economists. And welcome to the Renegade Economists with your host, Carl Fitzgerald. And this week we're talking to Roman Lannis, the Associate Professor of Accounting at the University of Technology, Sydney. So, Roman, you have been on the case of tax avoidance for a long time. You've done a number of major reports uh, published uh, through United Voice and other such groups. And uh, let's start off with the big news of the week that uh, there is a protected companies list that the Australian Tax Office has uh, given preferential treatment to certain companies. How does that list work and how is it ever justified? Yes, I think it's a list that was made uh, a long time ago. It's a list of what they call grandfathered companies. In other words, those companies, as, you, as you've correctly mentioned, were given exemptions from basically submitting uh, any financial statements to ASIC, essentially precluding anyone from the public, therefore knowing any, anything about their financial affairs, including tax affairs. Wow, and, and and it included one of the companies of which a current prime minister and his wife are directors, which he now says he will take off the list. But well, that's some sort of leadership, isn't it? But but I think it was only done once he was prompted about it. Initially, he suggested it it wasn't an issue, but I think. <laughs> I think it took a while for him, for him to realise that that it is. So the tax transparency movement really is building ahead of steam as more and more governments around the world are frustrated by the ability of corporations to seemingly jump through tax loopholes uh, at will. And today, uh, just like every other day, it seems, uh, there's a new story out, and this one is about uh, Pfizer, the big pharma company, leaving America and moving to Ireland for... Uh, a 14% tax discount. How do you see this trend evolving, Roman? Well, it's, it's, it's not a matter of evolving. It's been with us for 30 years. Apple, I think, was the first one to basically start this. And uh, I haven't read specifically exactly what Pfizer is doing, but I suspect they're doing something, what Apple did. And they're not, I don't think they're actually moving headquarters, but they're moving their intellectual property over to Ireland, um, which will then enable them to pretty much charge royalties from the Irish subsidiary and then pretty much, uh, you know, shift profits from everywhere else around the world. But, that, but you know, as I said, Apple started this back in, in the 80s or 90s 
when it was still a relatively small company. So it's been happening for quite a long time. And this is the trend, isn't it, uh, with corporations, is to is to write down as many profits as possible, find any way to declare a loss, if you like, so that they don't pay any tax. Especially the multinational companies, and not necessarily Australian local companies, not, not necessarily our local companies, but in particular the multinationals operating here because they they have that opportunity to shift profits overseas. Yeah, it's, it seems to be quite prevalent. I mean, you know, it's, it, and uh, we we've always known that, but I think, uh, given given the evidence that's been presented by those actual companies at the Senate inquiry, I think it's quite obvious what they're doing. Even though they, they've tried to say they're not doing it, but I think you know, you can kind of read between the lines. It's I think it's very prevalent, especially amongst multinationals. But obviously, you know, some of our big companies are doing it as well. Although, to be honest, I think the Australian companies are probably a little better than the multinationals. But it's it's across the board, you know. I mean, any large company, I think, pretty much probably thinks it's their duty to try to avoid as much tax in Australia as possible. In the Australian context, perhaps the most aggressive uh, tax minimizers would be the Westfield Group, and you've written some prominent articles on the conversation detailing some of their trickery. Mm. Can you step us through uh, how they've justified uh, not paying tax? Well, Westfield, like a lot of other uh, similar companies, are pretty much or were set up as property trusts, and essentially they... That they don't even have to pay tax. Tax is then simply paid on their distributions to the unit holders in those trusts. So yeah, they're a completely separate issue as well, to be honest. So you're saying real estate investment trusts don't have to pay any corporate tax. It's only the people who own the shares who who actually pay the tax. As long as they distribute all the profits, which they usually do, that's right. With the unit holders in these real estate investment trusts, uh, can they be set up as a uh, a self-managed super fund where those who are over 55 in, in so-called their uh, retirement phase will be exempted from paying any capital gains tax? Is there, a, is there some sort of structure that they're putting in place so that self-managed super funds are shareholders of real estate investment trusts and therefore they further water down any potential even the individual unit holders have of paying a tax. Well, super funds can, can invest in whatever they like, obviously. But super funds, you know, they have, as, as you pointed out, they have their own, there are separate tax rulings or regulations for, for super funds. But certainly super funds, the way they invest uh, would be in a way to take advantage of the law, not necessarily minimal, uh, avoiding tax, but, you know, uh, th- they they definitely would invest in ways that minimises whatever tax they they pay. But but that, that's a separate issue from the tax that's, that's, that's paid by the contributors to the super fund um, as well. Mm. So, there's I there's mean, so many issues in this field, aren't oh, there? Oh, no, there are. There's yeah, there's you know there's a huge there's a huge level of complexity, especially when we start talking about super funds and how they invest. Um, yeah, because uh, these self-managed super funds, I'm really interested in this debate that's been running for 20 years. 
property lobbies been trying to get self-managed super funds the ability to invest in residential property that finally was delivered uh, in 2010. Wayne Swan enacted that as one of his reforms to try and uh, pump prime the Australian property market, which was starting to falter back then. And now, uh, you know, I'd love to know more detail on how this is evolving. Well, the, self, the self-managed super funds are... Yeah, just I think just, just to make it clear, they're not the large super funds. They usually just could be you or me who's basically just you know opted to manage your own super as opposed to contribute to some organisation that invested on your behalf. So it's pretty much just individuals. Primarily, I think it's people in trades uh, who are able to do that. And yeah, essentially, they can contribute their salary to a super fund which is their, their actual super fund, which then, correctly as you stated, just purchases some property. Okay, now if you, you and I are together in this self-managed super fund and uh, let's say you're over 55 and um, I'm you know, in my early 40s, would that mean that I too can benefit from you being in the pension phase and I not have to pay any capital gains tax on the property sales that our self-managed super fund may sell? Yes, yeah, more or less. I mean, it's as, really? as I said, it, it it gets it. Well, again, I'm I'm not a, I can't I can't recall the exact uh, you know thresholds and stuff like that. But uh, but there are capital gains implications, and yes, people over 55, they're probably the the largest recipients of this because basically, yes, you're managing their own super funds and investing in property you just. The tax benefits they get just just kind of compound, but again, but that's legal, you know. That, that that's I, I I wouldn't call that tax avoidance. It's uh, as you said, it, it was something that the government basically brought in. So you would call that tax minimization, not tax avoidance. Well, I don't. There's all these euphemisms. What about tax planning? What would you call it? That. Well, yeah. Look, I. I probably don't want to get into it, but we, when we do research, we do have specific definitions. I mean, tax avoidance, tax aggressiveness is the more aggressive uh, sort of uh, part of tax minimization. Um, but, uh, well, so, so yeah, so I wouldn't, that's right, I wouldn't sort of call it tax avoidance or tax aggressiveness. It may be within the realm of tax planning, but, but then, you know, pretty much everyone this does tax planning these days, you know, there's probably nothing terribly wrong with that. You're on 3CR's Renegade Economist with your host Carl Fitzgerald and this week with Roman Lannis, the Associate Professor of Accounting from the University of Technology, Sydney. And Roman, let's move back to uh, one of the 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 big items you've been in the press for recently, and that was to do with our much-lauded petroleum resource rent tax. Now, here on The Renegade Economist, we're big fans of resource rent taxes because it's very hard to avoid paying them. But as we saw with the uh, mining resource rent tax, uh, the use of elaborate depreciation measures were used to uh, write down the, the taxable, the tax paid. Now, you had some interesting findings with our PRR uh, can you run us through uh, the work you, you did in that field? Well, I, I, I didn't do a hell of a lot. I worked with, uh, well, we consulted with uh, 
Jason Ward from from the International Transport Workers Federation. He's followed Chevron in particular quite quite a lot, and PWRT uh, and and other energy companies. And essentially, it seems like the revenue raised from that particular tax has decreased over the years, despite the fact that revenues from the energy sector have increased quite a lot. And uh, we, uh, unfortunately, unlike with, co- unlike with corporate tax, we can't only say much because companies don't actually have to, uh, at this stage, they will, I think, from next year, but at this stage, they don't have to report exactly what they've paid, how they've calculated it, etc. So we, all we know is pretty much in total what's happened to the PRRT. So we can't really speculate specifically about how 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 they've done this uh, or, how, or how each company has reduced their PWRT contributions but but it seems but it seems obvious to me you know if we have energy companies like Chevron who have been caught out avoiding tax you know there's been a judgment in 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 the federal court a few weeks ago uh, it seems logical to assume, you know, if, if if they are actually avoiding corporate tax, corporate income tax, PRRT would would be on their agenda as well. And and to be honest, to avoid PRRT is a lot easier than it is to avoid corporate income tax because the the, the rules and regulations around PRRT are almost like, you know, it's almost like a voluntary tax virtually. You know, they they, they can. The, the the deductions they can uh, they can use and 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 how it's all calculated it's almost you know it's it's, it's well you know uh, I I'm I'm not an expert but but there are experts who basically almost suggested the whole thing is a bit of a joke to be honest and that's despite the uh, federal treasury um, tax efficiency scalings putting the PRRT as one of our most efficient taxes. But uh, it's these tax loopholes, uh, these write-offs that are allowed. Can you give us some examples of some of the little tricks that are used to, to write down profits so that uh, the resource rent tax really can't be charged on it? I mean, there are two issues. The issues are companies have been allowed to, to basically deduct more and no, no one seems to be checking how they're actually doing it. In addition to that, none of that is, is even disclosed. So we, we can't check it, the public can't check it, for example. I mean, we can check a lot of things with corporate income tax through their financial statements, at least, or for those ones who actually produce them. But PRRT, it's almost like a black box, you know. So there's so there's a number of different issues, and it's not merely the rules of it itself, you know. It's just the administration of the whole thing is, uh, and the enforcement is, it's, it's all, uh, well, it's, it all seems to be quite, quite lax. And one of the, um, the the themes we're, we're, we're basically skirting around here is uh, uh, disclosures. And, and uh, I note in one of your articles you talk about Chevron being able to avoid their taxes uh, due to this concept of reduced disclosure requirements. Now, that sort of terminology um, reminds me of what these protected companies list, the, the um, yeah. ATO had allowed. Yeah. It's the same sort of thing, isn't it, that uh, yeah, it's, certain it's companies... Similar. It's similar, uh, but the logic is that they can't actually... Uh, so by not... By, you know, so by being less transparent, it's not actually... They don't actually avoid tax through that, but it helps them to avoid tax. So, and the logic is, 
basically, you know, if if the public at least knows uh, what these companies are doing, how much tax they are paying, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, well, you know, there would be pressure on these companies not to do it. That's 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 the whole argument behind the transparency debate. Mm. I mean, disclosure on its own has nothing to do with with tax avoidance per se. Well, it's not directly related, but but the logic is. If, if you get them to disclose, if we actually know exactly what they're doing, um, well, then, you know, there would be pressure from society in general for them to stop. And, that, and, and, and it's, happened, it's happened in other countries where, you know, certain companies who, who have had to disclose their tax affairs in more detail uh, have actually become less tax aggressive. So that's, 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 re- that's the real argument behind this transparency debate and, and the reduced disclosure regi- uh, requirements just like with special purpose reporting or with these grandfathered companies, the arguments are all very, very similar. I mean, they all allow these very, very large companies, which employ thousands and thousands of people and earn billions in revenue to basically do certain things with their tax affairs and, uh, and, and hide it. And then the the uh, the talk uh, when this first came out about uh, in, improved transparency of tax receipts, tax paid, all these sort of uh, transparency initiatives. Well, uh, a government uh, minister came out and said, "Well, that's going to lead to possible hostage situations when people mm-hmm. recognise how wealthy they are." So that got shouted down. Uh, how do you see government now evolving as these pressures continue? And day by day, they must see their tax base withering away as more and more uh, tax aggressiveness uh, comes through? The, the original bill was passed in the Senate, uh, I think it was a few weeks ago, to basically limit uh, a lot of large proprietary companies from disclosing the amount of tax they pay. But then a couple of our independent senators uh, found out that the lobby group that convinced them to do that was a, had three members and was founded by pretty much some of our largest companies, and they basically changed their mind. So I think the the bill had to go back to the to the lower house of parliament. It's now back in the senate, I think. The government basically is, has now sent exactly the same thing, pretty much back to the senate. So the government hasn't said, "Okay, we agree with you." There's obviously yeah, vested interests involved as well. I suspect a lot of these companies that that are proposed to be exempt from uh, from these additional tax disclosures are contributors to the Liberal Party. Where do you think it'll ever stop? I mean, I kind of feel like we're going to get to, you know, having improved transparency, and then there'll be some new new uh, tax avoidance measure that will come up. Will we ever be able to tighten the noose in a world where companies can uh, shut down and set up in different jurisdictions uh, according to the, the lowest tax rate? To answer your question is you need, you need a global effort to, to stop this, but, uh, but you know, I doubt that that will happen in the near future. I mean, the OECD, of course, have their BEPS project, which is trying to do that, but but to be honest, you know, it's 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 not a hell of a lot, you know. I mean, they're doing certain things which which hopefully will improve things. Uh, the, the other alternative is for Australia to go to go go it alone essentially and introduce its own, you know, laws and so on and so forth. But but then there are problems with with the tax treaties that we have with other countries. 
So it's, it's, it's a very complex issue, and I'm not sure if it will ever get resolved. Roman Lannis from UTS, thanks very much for joining us here on The Renegade Economists. There we have uh, probably the third or fourth special insight into tax avoidance here uh, in terms of uh, mainstream debate of uh, company tax and uh, how easily sidestepped it is. And yeah, you know, it's quite something to hear an expert like Roman Lanner saying, look, it's going to be really difficult to get on top of this unless every country on, in the planet <laughs> uh, basically comes up with the same tax rate. And you might remember the story I've told a few times, that would have been over a decade ago, the OECD held a tax harmonisation conference here at uh, a South Bank in a ritzy uh, complex there and the ritziest of the of them all uh, Langham House there up on the 38th floor I think we were at a Heritage Foundation event on the night before the tax harmonization uh, conference three-day conference and Heritage Foundation of course was George Bush's favorite uh, think tank and uh, that invited the world's media to come and listen to experts that had flown in from uh, a group such as the Cato Institute to fill their minds with the sort of uh, contrasting opinions to what they would be hearing over the next three days. So uh, that's how uh, the powerful, the wealthy play things out uh, well. Uh, strategized, well thought out and uh, little NGOs like ours and uh, Mark Zerzak from the Tax Justice Network, uh, basically one man bands are trying to take on these corporate giants who just uh, uh, dodge the laws uh, as they come and who knows what will develop in time with blockchain technology and things like bitcoin and and companies setting up uh, uh, entities in in the dark net and so forth so uh, yeah there's a lot to grasp in this world and that's why here on the renegade economist we say look uh, sure they can hide their uh, companies their corporate entities in various tax havens various tax jurisdictions but uh, the one thing they cannot hide is their land so uh, that's why we advocate for a switch away from taxes on the productive sector and on to the incredible naturally rising value of the earth. My, my, Australian land values increased last year by a mere $525 billion and all we need to cover all three levels of government is $500 billion. So yes, it's a big picture story, it's highly controversial, but this ever-increasing property bubble is the natural source of funding government revenue. So uh, yeah, that, that's uh, the big picture story, and you know it's just so good to see that despite uh, you know my concerns with with uh, uh, some of these tax uh, tax transparency elements, which are all valid, um, is it in the end really going to help reduce inequality when uh, even in countries where there are reasonable uh, corporate entities paying their fair share of tax that uh, the rising value of land easily outstrips uh, national income growth and that's what's driving the inequality uh, barrier. So we need to look at these root causes so if we're really going to zero in on uh, 
why so many of us are living in dark hovels whilst uh, I get emails from property spruikers uh, boasting about how they work half a day a week from their kitchen table and earn five times the median wage. Yes, half a day a week and they can earn five times uh, what uh, some $80,000 earner is pulling in. So uh, that's the, the real disparity. Uh, CEO wages, sure, they're, they're an issue, but uh, uh, they're nothing compared to the easy capital gains that are enjoyed by those who own real estate in particular. But that spreads through to uh, uh, companies enjoying their monopoly rights in uh, the privatization of DNA. Cyber squatting, for example. Land resigning. My God, uh, there's an article out today in The Age. Clay Lucas on fire again showing how a developer brought bought a warehouse complex for $4.4 million uh, a few years ago and has just sold it to the state government for $19 million. Thank you, Matthew Guy, for the rezoning stuff up of all time, perhaps, in Fisherman's Bend. It's going to be quantified in the billions and billions of dollars, and I just wish we had $40,000 to uh, enact a sort of study that Cameron Murray, been on the show a number of times, did in Queensland where he looked at the relationships between politicians, their family members, uh, members of the uh, uh, the Queensland Racing Club, uh, members of various uh, political parties and came up with some 288,000 uh, different uh, relationship pointers and found that those who had strong social networks uh, backed up by a few donations, were the ones who were 40% more likely to have uh, the sort of golden pentic that delivers uh, rezoning windfalls that uh, uh, this property owner, I think he's from um, Polk Coffees, uh, enjoyed there in Fisherman's Bend. So that story continues on and on, and I hope you guys can uh, look into your diaries and mark down Tuesday, December the 8th. Tuesday, December the 8th. That is looking like the launch date for our uh, latest speculative vacancies report. Yes, it's been a while. We've moved offices twice this year. It's been a very tough year for me. My God, send me an email. Cheer me up, please. But uh, yeah, another jaw-dropping figure about to be released on how speculators can have uh, so many thousand properties empty whilst uh, they uh, talk to the media with a straight face saying, look, there's a housing supply crisis. There's nowhere to live. There's uh, just, uh, please rezone my land, rezone my land. Well, I hope you're getting the point here on 3CR's Renegade Economist that uh, this all comes back to the economic uh, equation that removed the earth from the core uh, productive function. So uh, my name's Carl Fitzgerald. Um, get in touch via um, Earth Sharing on Twitter. Uh, we have a Facebook group uh, called Earth Sharing. There's also realestateforransom.com and uh, our website, uh, Earth Sharing, will have the show notes up tomorrow. And, of course, there's a lot more content on prosper.org.au where uh, you could become a member. I don't often pitch for it, but uh, please uh, get in touch. Uh, I need some vibes to keep this show going. I, I do like doing it, but, gee, 
it's it's a hard slog sometimes. So uh, get on the Earthsharing website and ask some questions, uh, anything you want followed up from the show. All right, uh, thanks very much for listening. Stay tuned to more good content here on 3CR. G'day, I'm Warwick Thornton, the writer-director of Samson and Delilah, and you're listening to 3CR. Hey, hey. Mm-hmm.